Hey, this is Carl. Are you interested in Xamarin Forms? Do you want to get started with me? Well, if you're going to Dev Intersection October 25th through the 28th, consider going to my Xamarin Forms workshop on Monday, October 24th. It's going to be an all-day workshop. The first half, we're going to set up Xamarin Forms and go through the whole process of getting all your devices hooked up. And second half, we're going to dive right in. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff, including an MVVM application that you'll be able to use as a model for your stuff going forward. We're going to deal with native components as well as the stuff that's in the box XAML-wise. So go to devintersection.com right now and sign up for the workshop. There's still a few seats left, and uh, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1363, with guest Elton Stoneman. Recorded Thursday, October 6th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here for another hour of .NET goodness and uh, legacy apps and Docker goodness. Yes. Good day today. Indeed. Yeah. How are you doing, Mr. Campbell? I'm, you know, plunking along. It's fall. We're coming up to the one-year anniversary of the flood in my basement. You'd think my basement would be finished by now. But no! (laughs) You know, it's awfully close. I got my machines built. My wife's office is beautiful. The rec room is beautiful. The guest room's in operation. It's really just my office. It's, It's the last of the lights. The last little trim details. And we did push me back. Yeah. We sort of left that off for this. But Well, this is the last show that we recorded on uh, October 6th, which is the day the hurricane hit Florida. And uh, it's it's uh, Hurricane Matthew. It's due to hit just about any time now this evening. I think it's going to hit West Palm Beach. Wow. Yep. Be safe. Be hope safe. Go well. Yeah. Hope it went well, actually. Because it's October 19th now. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who said, oh, I just got these great new uh, hurricane windows. They're certified up to 120 miles an hour. And I'm like, dude, Matthew's 150. It's like, ah. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's hope they're not get too tested. We'll find out. Yeah, really. Well, you know, it's all about uh, saving the princess today. So if we roll the crazy music, I'll tell you how that relates to today's Better Know Framework. What is this princess you speak of? Well, this is show 1363. So if you go to 1363.pwop.me, you will see this great cartoon called Get the Princess, How to Save the Princess Using Eight Programming Languages. And this is by Toggle Goon Squad. All right. So I'm just going to read a few of them. You'll have to go read the rest of them. First. You have JavaScript. You spend hours picking libraries, setting up Node, and building a framework for the castle. By the time you're finished with the framework, the fort has been abandoned, and the princess has moved to another castle. Awesome. (laughs) You have C. You have a library for a castle and a library for the princess. Charge! You rescue the princess, her dog, her entire wardrobe, and everything she has ever eaten. F word. Did I forget a null terminator? (laughs) (laughs) This is the best. You have C sharp. You spend hours trying to express the entire rescue in a single link query. You give up and go to Stack Overflow to have John Skeet rescue the princess for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> Although this one comes in second. So true. You have Java. You quickly deploy the rescue to production and you discover you've loaded two versions of the castle, but no princess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's uh, four more. You'll have to go there. Uh, 1363.plop.me to see the rest of them. Very, very funny stuff. Awesome. And I uh, wonder what John Skeet has to say about that. <laughs> John Skeet made the cartoon. Yeah. All right. There you go. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1254, which we did back early this year, February of 2016, with one Ben Hall when we were talking about container patterns. And I realized looking back on this show that Ben was in the midst of developing Katakota at the time. He just wasn't ready to talk about it yet. So mm. he was deeply engaged in, you know, containers at scale because that's how Katakota does its thing. Right. So it's very funny to sort of look at that retroactively. And the comment here just sort of fed back on that whole thinking because that's, you know, the better part of a year ago and, and the Windows world is still just getting trying to get their head around Docker. And, and Brian Smithson's clearly one of those folks because he says, I am very intrigued by Docker and containers in general. I have a dev stage deployment cycle that is painful, and I'd really like to leverage this idea. Mm. All dev stage deployment cycles are painful yep. until, they're, until they're not, and they're yeah. very rarely not. I wonder if one of the advantages of containers, complete encapsulation of dependencies, might become a security slash public good nightmare in the future. Hmm. I build ASP.NET apps. I build the releases of the .NET framework. I presume I'd be building a container with a version of .NET in any of the libraries I need. Yes, you would put that all in the specification, right? It's configuration as code. Yep. What happens when some sort of vulnerability is found in one of the libraries I depend on and I build it into my container? Is it possible there'll be containers out there running compromised code because an OS patch wouldn't fix what's inside a container? Because if it did, it might break the application. Yes, that's absolutely a risk. What you do is make a new container with the patch code that you properly tested and replace the old one. Yep. This feels a little like router firmware problems we have now. Routers are everywhere with old firmware that hasn't been upgraded because people just don't know what they have. And, 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 and. yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Is, uh, is this person basically saying what happens if I have a bug? Well, what happens, it's the security problem. And I, yeah. and it's like, you know, containers are not going to save people from bad behavior. Right. There's no two ways about that. You're still responsible for patching your own software. You either leave automated patching in place so it just happens, in which case you run the risk of software breaking. Mm -hmm. Microsoft just had... Uh, this week, a bad uh, update to Windows 10 that, while it didn't break any systems, it didn't work either. Or you are taking responsibility for that. And the container system makes it pretty easy to do that. I, the one advantage I would say is that it's very clear where the vulnerability is. It's very easy for you to change it. And using containers allows you to roll those updates together very quickly. Yep, sure are. Brian, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We feed him to the princess. Is the princess hungry? I, she's always hungry. All right. Well, that brings us to our guest today, Elton Stoneman. He is a Microsoft MVP, a Pluralsight author, and Docker captain. He works mainly in the Microsoft stack, but he's a cross-plat guy, having been working with Docker on Linux for a couple of years, waiting patiently for it to come natively to Windows. Now it's here, 
and he wants to help dockerize the Microsoft world. Welcome, Elton. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. Good to have you. I love that word, dockerize. Dockerize. <laughs> the dockerification of the world. Dockerification. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Containerize all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so you're obviously bullish on the whole dockerization of Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so like I say, I'm, uh, I've always worked professionally in the Microsoft world. So back in the day, I've been .NET and developer and architect. And I worked in integration, plugging systems together with BizTalk and all sorts of stuff. And then uh, always been a back-end guy. So, um, so web services, WCF, REST APIs, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. At home, I'm a Linux guy. So my server in the in the garage that runs Ubuntu and all my stuff at home is kind of Linux-based. So um, when Docker came around a couple of years ago, I happened to be working on a project for a client where we were a cross-platform team. Uh, and so we had we were, our public stuff was all on Azure. It was all .NET services running up on Azure. Yeah. But our dev stack was all Linux. So we had GitLab for our source control. We had Jenkins doing our builds, all that sort of stuff. And Docker was just starting to gain traction. And I think it was kind of 0.7, 0.8. So it was mm. a lot of features were there. It had a, a lot of people were talking about it. So we started to, to Dockerize <laughs> our, our dev stack. And, um, and that was great. And, and I've been really into it ever since I came home, Dockerized all my stuff on my, on my home server. And uh, I've been getting pretty heavily into it, waiting for it to be native on Windows. Endless tweaking. And, you know, for a tweaker, this kind of uh, stuff, Ubuntu, Docker, you know, going the the full stack and all of that stuff just gives you ample opportunity to fine tune and, and get everything just right, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And um, the interesting thing about that about that whole tweaking thing, so there's four or five services that I run at home. So I've got mm. my music server, I've got the, the all the stuff for my wireless access points, all that sort of stuff. They were all running in virtual machines, but I was running out of space. So Docker comes along. I start to think, let's Dockerize these things. Um, started putting together some images, and a lot of what I use is already out there on Docker Hub. Some other nice. guys already done. So my tweaking is limited to making sure I'm happy with what's in their image yeah. and downloading it and running it. That's an interesting aspect I think most people just aren't aware of with Docker, because we did this for a while with VMs, too, at least inside of the Microsoft influencer community, right? If you were part of their evangelism group, they would ship you DVDs of pre-configured VMs of all sorts of products, so you didn't have to struggle to get stuff set up. And I'm looking at you, SharePoint, you evil, evil (laughs) thing. Um, And although TFS, close number two. But very hard to get TFS set up correctly. Mm. So to just have these VMs, fire them up on your machine and go to work, it's awesome. But they're they're gigs and gigs and gigs. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the really interesting things about about Docker and containers is that it influences so much of what we do. Wait like beyond just running all your stuff in production, which gives you, you know, uh, a lot more density so you can get more for your compute power. Right. Uh, to making making your dev pipeline easier, all that sort of stuff. But there's it's it's really useful for learning. So I've been writing a couple of uh, of ebooks and stuff. And instead of saying, you know, now you need to set up your environment, use this version of Windows, download this, install that, follow these instructions. It never works properly. You can't follow along with the demos. I just put an image up on the hub. So if you want to follow this demo, type Docker, run, whatever, and it's, it's there. Now, are you actually, is that actually an image of it or is it literally the script to build it? 
No, no, these are the actual uh, packages, the, the, the whole unit. So it's not uh, the, the Docker file is your configuration script, and mm-hmm. you use that to build an image, which is a, a single logical unit that contains the whole stack. So it contains your application, your application's dependencies, it contains the platform, the platform's dependencies, and the operating system is all in one thing. So if you install Docker on Windows and run Docker run Microsoft slash IIS, it will download the Microsoft IS image from the hub, which is about about four gig. So it'll take a while to download. Uh, and then when it runs, you'll just have IS running in a container on your Windows machine. Interesting. So what does this do to licensing? Good question. So that's something that I've been asking for a little while, trying to get some clarity about how all this stuff works. And actually what, what they're doing is the license is what you pay on the host. So you pay your Windows 10 license, you pay your Windows Server 2016 license, and then the containers that run on the host don't have any additional license. So you don't, you're not, you're not limited to running, you know, or you can only run 10 containers with this version of Windows. You have to upgrade if you want to run more. You run as many as you want. That's cool. I'm just thinking about the licensing of the different pieces of software. Like, not that, not that Microsoft sells IIS per se, but you do have to own a Windows license to run, in theory, to run that, but it's outside of the container. As long as the licensing is only on the OS, but maybe something like SQL Server. Is there a SQL Server image in Docker Hub? Because that's a retail product. You got to pay for every copy of it. Yeah, great question. So, so Docker Hub has a SQL Server Express image. Right. So, the free SQL one. Server Express, the free one. Yeah, you can download that and run it. But the but the 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 licensed version is not available as a Docker image as yet. But there's a, there's a separate hub. There's the Docker Store, which is for exactly that problem. So, how do I give? How do I let people download my software in an image, run it in a container, but but pay me for it? And Docker Store, which is a, a new thing, so it's, you know, it's just kind of emerging. Um, that's going to be where you go and you, you sign in, you pay for X number of containers, and then you, you download and run your image like that. Interesting. That's a di- very different way to think about licensing something like SQL Server, which is typically licensed by the core these days, although like, they also license by the Cal, I think. But neither one of those even may, I don't even know if that even makes sense in a Docker Store context. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, the, the, all sorts of things are changing when you start thinking about applications as a, as a packaged image that, right. that you will, uh, you can either run for free or potentially you're going to be charged for the number of instances that you run. So, you know, it's in, in terms of the, the license seller, it's an interesting way to look at ongoing licenses rather than being charging per CPU or per core, which is a, a kind of specious way to charge for stuff. You know, if someone's got a database with, 200 gigabytes of data in there. You're going to charge right. them the same as someone with, with one gig. Um, actually, if they've got lots and lots of databases, why not have them each in a container and, and charge them per container? Right. And, and yeah, the whole idea of charging by the hardware you use is kind of a, obsolete when you get into the container world where it's like, I'm going to lie to you about cores anyway, man. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, what is what is hardware? Yeah, hardware's hardware's going to go away, right? You're just going to have something that you run your container on. Yeah, if you're going to charge me for each CPU socket, I'm going to tell you I have the greatest single CPU socket known to man. Absolutely, yeah. Right. I'm running on a Raspberry Pi. Honest, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> honest. But boy, this is one heck of a pie. <laughs> Uh, I love it. It's just so interesting to think about how different these models are. And I, my, my big concern is like, look, I'm pretty sure SQL Server paid for a house for me. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So I got nothing bad to say about SQL Server. Like it is, it is done its job well, but 
if in this world, it feels like a dinosaur. Like, why why would you do that when there's Postgres if you care about relational databases and you just get rid of all those problems? Ver, or are you looking at, you know, less conventional relational stores? So what's in your toolbox for moving legacy apps into uh, into Docker containers? Is it really as easy as it sounds? Oh, it, it is super easy. Um, so that, the, the interesting thing is that uh, the, all the all, because Docker's emerged from the Linux world and it's kind of coincided with .NET Core and all the fun stuff that's happening with with breaking .NET down into small reusable components. Mm. That fits in really neatly with building uh, an application container image that's just a few hundred megabytes you can easily throw anywhere. So, so a lot of the focus thus far has been. You take your brand new application, you write it in .NET Core, you bundle it up in a Docker image, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> but actually, the majority of people are going to be using ASP.NET, full .NET framework apps. And you can't run those on Microsoft Nano Server because it doesn't have all the kit to actually run the mm -hmm. .NET framework. But the, but the base images that Microsoft have, they also have a Windows Server Core image. And you can install whatever you need to do on that because it is Windows Server Core. You can use PowerShell to install Windows features that could be ASP.NET, it could be IIS, it could be MSMQ, and then you just add in all your application dependencies and your application itself, just like you would do with a with a much smaller app, and you build it into an image. Now, that image is going to be 8, 9, 10 gig rather than a, a few hundred megabytes, but actually that's not a problem for Docker. Mm. The way that Docker works is, is your image is actually, you, you treat it as one image, so you, you run your, a container from your image and you download an image or you push an image up to the hub, but actually it's layered so the, the base layer, which is your Microsoft Windows Server core, is 6, 7 gig. And if you've got 10 containers all using that image, then that one 6 gig file, they all use it. So they only have a kind of diff for each image. So, yeah. so it's, it's a really efficient way to do stuff. And actually, you can, you can take your existing ASP.NET applications and wrap them in a Docker container in literally 20, 30 lines of code. Nice. So this presumes that I actually know the architecture of my application still. I, I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with folks where like, we really highly dependent on this app. Great. What's in this app? It's in that computer over there. Hmm. Like that's as much as they know about that app anymore. So, I mean, part of, part of me is thinking like I've, my first reflex when I see a scenario like that is to P to V that machine, right? Okay. Right <laughs> away. This needs to be a VM. <laughs> yeah. So that we have a chance, you know, we're no longer hardware dependent, but actually decomposing it into containers. Or do I, can I make a monster Docker container that's just the whole thing? Uh, kind of. So, so you can't, you can't just take an image and then say to Docker, this is my image. I want you to run it as a container. You can't take a, a virtual hard disk. Right. And run it as a container, but you can take a virtual hard disk and, and the, uh, the Docker community have a tool called, uh, image to Docker, I think, which you, which is, uh, a PowerShell tool that you point to a VHD and it interrogates what's inside the, the, v the virtual disk and it will extract uh, a Docker file from that. So you can build an image that's got the same content as the VHD. That's a work in progress and it's, it's iterating at the moment. Mm. But I would say if you're, if you've got an application running on a VM and you don't know what's in it, I think you've probably got a bigger problem. Yeah, and just definitely. Moving, it into a, moving it into a container is just going to, it's going to give you a slightly smaller problem. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I do think the goal of getting to containers means you're going to need to inspect and understand your app. Like at least it's a mission to actually get your head around making your software better. 
the same way that building unit tests around a bunch of code you're trying to learn is a good way to you know get your hands on that app and actually make it more reliable in the process. So yeah. I'm I'm fascinated. I found the in the PowerShell gallery image to Docker. So this is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 what you're going to find as you go through that process, which is going to be painful and time consuming, uh, but the outcome is you're going to find that actually we've got a bunch of stuff on here that we don't need. So right. let's not Always. put that into the container. So, so your container is actually going to reflect what you need to run your app. It's going to be a much more lightweight and more usable piece of kit. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Stackify. Hey, you know, .NET developers are writing better code these past few months. Well, the thousands that are using Prefix are anyway. Stackify built Prefix to rapidly improve their own apps. Now they've decided to share it with the rest of us, which is great. No .NET profiler is easier, prettier, or more powerful, and people are catching on. Twitter is a flutter with stories of saved bacon. Go to bit.ly slash getprefix, and we'll hook you up with a free download. So let's clarify for the .NET developers out there who don't have a lot of Linux experience. How much Linux do they need to know? You don't need to know any Linux. So, so that's the beauty of it. The, the, the interesting position we're in now is that all this stuff runs natively on Windows. You can go and follow the tutorials on MSDN, install it on Windows 10 or Server 2016, and get up and running with Windows. You don't have to have any Linux knowledge. The trouble is, uh, Docker's three, four years old now. So yeah. almost all the content on the, on the, on the web, all the tutorials, all the blogs are almost all about Linux. Right. There's a lot of commonality. So the way you build a Docker image is with a, with a text file that describes all the steps you need to take to build that image. Yeah. And the, the syntax for the Docker file is the same, whether it's Linux or Windows. So, so a lot of that knowledge can be reused. But I think the, the difficulty people will have is separating the Linux-only stuff from, from the new Windows stuff. It'd be nice to have uh, some sort of cross-reference for Windows people who need to learn just enough Linux to know how to use the and read the documentation and all that kind of stuff. Just sort of a Linux primer. And I'm sure they're out there. Um, it, it, maybe Pluralsight has something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're a Pluralsight subscriber, I would I would go to the site and search for you know I don't know getting started with Ubuntu. Yeah, and uh, and you'll hit my course. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good, very good. You just picked that one out of the sky. So, well, maybe this. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's it's really important. I mean, you know, if if all the tools require a different operating system you're not used to, you don't want to have to become an expert in that operating system. You just want to know enough to uh, keep you out of trouble. The question is going to be, will we get to a place where we have great documentation on running a Docker on Windows? You know what this reminds me of, in terms of experience I've had, is running WordPress on Windows. Yeah. Because everybody runs it on, on Linux, as well they should. Like, every bit of documentation you find is, here's how you set the security constraints, you know, with a chmod, which is the way I do it in Linux. I'm like, how am I going to translate that into an ACL in, in Windows? <laughs> so, I don't, I don't, you know... I subscribe to your idea, buddy, of learning enough Linux to be able to read this stuff. But yeah. I, it sounds like an opportunity for someone to sit down and just build decent blog posts and information for for Windows folks to use Docker well. Mm. Absolutely, and the, and the the 
the Docker captains, which is Docker's kind of recognition program, just like Microsoft have MVPs. Uh, those guys, I'm one of those, are, are busy now doing all that sort of stuff. So when I finish talking to you guys, I'm going to be recording a, a really simple YouTube 101 for, for Docker on Windows, which will, which will cut through a lot of the, 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 the stuff that's out there and get you to the basics for getting started with Windows. And just going back to that, that Linux point, one of the really interesting things is that if you're reading someone's existing Docker file and it's got all that stuff that you don't understand, like, you know, it's got cat and, uh, and grep and curl and all that sort of stuff. A lot of those things aliases in PowerShell. So what, yeah. what's one of the great things about PowerShell is you can run curl, which is an alias for invoke web request. Ah, very good. And that just works. Yep. Yeah, I often have seen examples of how to use an API with only a curl sample. And it'd be better if they just published the damn HTTP that gets sent. <laughs> Dude, if you, if you can't use curl with your API, your API is not right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Meanwhile, over here in Windows land, we're like, what the hell is curl? <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, especially in the web world now, the line is so blurry, right? The, the ASP.NET core and so forth, I mean, running cross-plat, um, part of me just wants to not think the operating system matters all that much anymore. Absolutely, and that's that's a, that that is. I think that's a, that's the direction that, that Docker are going in. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Docker, uh, from you know way back early on, they were always embracing Microsoft and, and Windows. You know, a lot of the a lot of the interesting Linux kind of startup guys are not interested. You know, we're not going to put any documentation about Windows. We're not going to help you right from the beginning. Docker have been really keen to to make this open to the Windows world, and now that's come to fruition with it being kind of with that partnership with Microsoft and baking it into the operating system. Yeah. So what I understand about Docker is that the only thing that makes it possible is a hook that was exposed in the operating system, Linux, that, that allowed this stuff to sort of happen at a low level. And then, you know, the Microsoft saw how that worked and said, ah, we can do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the whole kind of idea of it, which is when you run a container, you, you're running in this kind of isolated sandbox on your, on your machine. Uh, but it's really lightweight. It's not heavy like a, like a virtual machine. It, it just runs the processes, but there, there's a, a very tiny sort of sandbox around them. That's yeah. been in Linux for a long time. Um, and yeah, the, the Microsoft guys took the, took the concept and applied it to what you can do in Windows. It's, uh, it's, there's some pretty funky low-level stuff in there. It's not as simple as just translating it, I don't think. But uh, right. uh, they've, they've, they've taken the concepts and made it work in Windows, yeah. Yeah, so I, I like to say, and I'll say it again, that uh, containers have the configurability of an operating system, but the weight of a process. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so when when Docker was 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 first trying to to get the message across to the world, they would compare a Docker image to a, to a virtual machine, yeah. And that's that's useful in saying, you know, a virtual machine is maybe fifty gig. You need to allocate a certain amount of CPU, allocate a certain amount of RAM. You can only run four or five on a decent server. Mm. Whereas with a container, like you say, they run like a process. You don't have to allocate resources to them. They will fight amongst themselves. So if you've got you can run a hundred containers on your machine as long as they're not all trying to use all your CPU. They just work. Um, but actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's more like a really lightweight process. So in your opinion, what do you think for uh, a Windows only person who's trying to take hold of Docker and Windows containers? What's going to be the biggest stumbling block or maybe what might be a, a something to watch out for? So the, the, the thing to watch out for, I think, is, um, is trying to find your way through the documentation because, because like you say, 
it needs we need to get up to speed fast with with the Windows world because there's such a wealth of stuff about about Docker and Docker has moved really quickly. So even even the the, the Linux documentation, Docker's on version 1.12 now. That was a big change from 1.10, which was a big change from 1.0, and all the old documentation is still out there, and all the blog posts and what people are doing has moved on quite a lot. I've been on I've been spending a chunk of time on Stack Overflow lately, looking at what people are doing with Docker, and there are two questions which always come up all the time and they're about integrating your container with your operating system uh, because it's, it's a slightly different way of thinking about things it's a slightly different way of working and what people do is they say they, they take their application they bundle it up into an image they run it in a container and it's not working and the obvious place to place the blame is is Docker. They're saying, what's wrong with Docker? But actually, it's something to do with the way you're integrating your container with the host operating system. Um, so, so what you will find is you're going to hit some stumbling blocks about how that stuff all fits together really neatly. And when you're going to look for the, for the help, you're probably going to hit some Linux help. So right. it's going to take a little while, I think, for, for the, the, you know, the Windows stuff to smooth out. Um, but having said that, you know, it's, it's, if you find a Windows tutorial, and follow that through, you're going to find it's incredibly easy. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to go north, hit the ice, and do some 12-ounce curling. Curling. What? Curling. <laughs> what are you doing Canadian jokes? This is a three-pronged joke here. Oh, yeah. No, you've got me all over the place. You got my trip to the Arctic. You got- <laughs> Yeah. We got curling, which yeah. is the national pastime of Canadians. That's It's actually hockey, but some of us curl, yeah. Uh, well, okay. So, weird Canadians. <laughs> you've got 12-ounce curls, which is another euphemism for drinking. Yes. And then you've got curl, which, yeah. you know, is the most crazy- Looks like a cartoon character swearing language you've ever seen. No offense. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) But none of those things are true. No, none of them. It's actually time to give away SyncFusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you what we like about SyncFusion. They have over 650 components for web, desktop, and mobile applications, including great native Xamarin controls, They even have enterprise solutions with a dashboard designer and big data platform. But best of all, they are affordable. It's one flat fee for everything. Everyone in the company, no hassle, no gimmicks, and you really get every application with no restrictions. This is unprecedented. Check them out at syncfusion.com or look them up on Facebook to see how you can get started today. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Sam Rumley. Congratulations, Sam. Yay! Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Sam. And uh, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Sam won a SyncFusion Essential Studio. Great big pile of awesome from SyncFusion. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Elton. If you had $5,000 US to spend on technology, what would you buy? That's a, that, that is a good question. I'm glad you, you, you briefed me beforehand to tell yeah. me you could ask me that. We warn you. <laughs> You did. So I'm fairly up to date with my, with my tech. So I've got a lot of tech around here. So I was thinking, what would I buy as a kind of luxury item? And, uh, and it occurred to me that what I would really want is my own robot army. So what? 
Yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> Don't we you all? Know you, um, really? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's doable. You can do this. So you know, there's this is company Sphero. They make these spherical robots. They just sort of roll around. Don't do a huge amount, but they they sell accessories for them. And one of them is called a chariot. So you hook your robot thing into this chariot, and on the back of that, you can put a Raspberry Pi with a camera and a, and a microphone and a speaker. And you'll probably get that for sort of three hundred dollars. So I could buy ten, fifteen of those and have them just roll me around my house. Well, that sounds like fun to me. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then obviously, you know, plug that into my, some Docker containers on my server, and <laughs> I can I can dial home and say, "Hey, hey, boys, where's the cat?" And they'll they'll roam around the house <laughs> until they find him, That's and show me show me on my phone a picture of the cat <laughs> cowering in the corner, surrounded yes. by droids. A picture <laughs> of the of the robot chasing the cat around That's the house. <laughs> that is what I want to see. Making barking yes. and making dog angry dog sounds. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the terrorized cat feature of my robot. Now that would <laughs> yes. be fun, actually. And uh, yeah, the really really does is roll around making vacuum cleaner sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get a Roomba. Just get something that sounds like a Roomba. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Roombas and cats don't mix. You want to see something really horrible? See what happens when a Roomba runs over a pile of cat poop. Oh, <laughs> that is not a good thing because the Roomba doesn't know it's done that. And if you're not in the room when that happens, you're going to find that cat poop evenly distributed throughout the room. That's some stank. Ask me how I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be begging for another flood. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Robots. I love it. Robots and Docker in the same show there you go yeah now, aren't robots just containers for technology maybe they are maybe you know the database side of this equation i think is the part that most people struggle with uh, around docker because the whole point about docker is this very stateless mindset right that you have multiple instances of things they can come and they go you know nothing is is permanent and nothing's a pet they're all cattle but data is kind of important how do you protect it yeah, absolutely. So, so that's, that's something which has been, you know, a question for a little while. Uh, with when you run your container, there are, uh, there's, there's the file system that the container sees, which is, I mean, I've got my disk and I write to my disk. Right. But in reality, that, that file system is built up of a whole bunch of different parts that, that Docker abstracts away from the container. So you've got the image. So you've got the, all the stuff that you've built from your Docker file. That's read only. So the container can't alter that stuff. But right. on top of the image, there's a thin writable layer where the container can write its own stuff so it thinks it's it's changing files but actually docker's creating a new copy and hiding away the one from the image so that's 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 really smart but the really smart thing is that you can have a volume so a volume is like uh mounting a, a usb drive or a, an extra disc on your on your pc mm. it's uh, it's something that the, the container writes to but in reality it's hitting uh, a piece of disc that you've mounted from your host so you might say when i run my container i want the the, the c drive in the container to a directory in the c drive to point to a directory on my D drive on my host, which is a, a RAID array. And so every time you run that container, every time it accesses its data, it's coming from the same place. Mm -hmm. And also you can have different types of volume drivers. You can have network file shares as a, as a volume store. So when your container thinks it's writing locally, it's actually writing to, a, to an NFS share. And then if that container goes down and comes back up somewhere else, when it reads from what it thinks is the local file system, it's coming from the same NFS share. So the, the, that stuff's all out there. You know, it's, it's, you, you need to find out the, the best way to do it for your own scenario, for your own infrastructure. But, uh, but those are problems that, that have already been solved. Nice. 
yeah, obviously people have been successful with this. Uh, and so I'm th- again thinking this legacy app, and I'm thinking through how I'm going to decompose it. And obviously peeling the database off to, for it so it runs in its own world. Well, odds are that's already happened, right? It's rare that I find, you know, the database is included in the same VM or, or same machine. But it's I think when we get into that mid-tier part, all the other things, whether it's a web server or just a set of of API calls to some back-end yeah. services, like that's that's a harder nut to crack. Absolutely. And I think the 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 really interesting thing there is it forces you to think about the value. What's the, peeling this stuff apart is going to be expensive. So I'm only right. going to get I'm only going to peel off the bits that give me an immediate return. Yeah. So so I've been I've got a a blog series running now, which is Dockerizing Nerd Dinner. Do you guys remember Nerd Dinner? Oh sure. Yeah, yeah. So so that's a, so that's an app that it was a showcase for ASP.NET MVC, right? So it had a few iterations up on Coplex. Remember Coplex? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so if you go to Coplex and look at Nerd Dinner, the last check-in was in 2013. So I've taken that code and I've uh, I've built the application. So I've built as an ASP.NET MVC four app with local DB. So it does use uh, the 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 database is inside the, the same host as the web app, and I've Dockerized that. So I've, Part one is just writing a Docker file to wrap up that whole application in one one image. So I've done that now, and you can go and check that out and see see how I've got on with that. And now I'm going to have a whole roadmap, which is which is going to hopefully mimic what people will do with their roadmap when they start Dockerizing their own apps. Mm, right. So part two is breaking out the the database, putting that in a separate container, and dealing with with environments. So changing the code a little bit so it's easier to to spin up a container and say you're the test environment or your production or whatever. Yeah. Then part three is is where it starts to get really interesting. So I've got my big monolithic application. I'm running it in a container now. It's it's still you know a, a monolithic legacy app. Those monolithic legacy apps that you know we used to call them end tier best practice architectures. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> now you call it legacy. <laughs> yeah, now it's big, the legacy. Big, uh, big, slow, and ugly. Yeah, absolutely. And and there are going to be some parts of that that there are that give you value in breaking them out into their own services. Uh so a couple of obvious examples, things that that change frequently and if there's a value in it changing frequently. So maybe like the home page, mm-hmm. right? So the business want to change the home page often and get quick feedback to see if that's if that's if people prefer it, if it's driving engagement. Breaking out the the homepage renderer into a separate microservice, so you can deploy that as many times as you like without touching the main app. That's going to give you a lot of value. It won't be very expensive because you're you're leaving most of the app behind. And on the mm-hmm. on the other end of the scale, there's going to be bits in your app that that give you value by staying the same. So maybe like if you've got a complicated checkout component that never ever changes, uh, you might break that out into a microservice so that you could leave that behind while you're updating the other things. So so there are so the, the 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 roadmap I think is identifying the high value stuff that you break out into services and you and you just separate those bits out because because not everybody is Netflix or Uber or Amazon we don't need we're not all going to need thousands of microservices and hundreds of deployments per day yeah. but if you can pick out the stuff that that genuinely gives you value to be able to move quickly with then then it justifies the investment in in changing the way you do stuff. Now, I'm, I'm not to contradict you, Elton, but it's like you see two viewpoints you've sort of presented there. There's high value versus high uh, volatility. I mean, is there a yeah. presumption that highly volatile is also highly valuable? 
Uh, not necessarily. Right. So, so if if it's volatile because the business want to change it because they think that there's more value in 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 changing it quickly, then that's something that's a good candidate. You know, right. things where they where they want to get f- quick feedback. Do the users like it? If not, let's change it. I mean, the other aspect of of using of of a containerizing by volatility is that reduces the cost of that volatility too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so if someone says, right, okay, this, this, this bit that we've broken out into a microservice, that's cool. We can do updates to that whenever we like. Right. So, so taking my example of uh, of the homepage, say, so if you want to, some someone wants to change that homepage rendering component, what do you have to do? You, you change the code, you change the tests, uh, you run it through your pipeline. As soon as it's happy, you push it live. You're only testing that tiny component. That's right. the only thing that's changing. You don't change the main app because that's not going to change. It's still calling into a separate service to get to get its content out. So you're focusing down on on the only bit that's important and you're removing the risk of damaging anything else in the app because you're not touching the rest of the app. Right. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I mean, certainly I've subscribed for a long time to the idea of I architect applications by volatility. But that, and that really comes down to, you know, a given set of classes, a given set of methods and a given set of developers. And and having them focus on that piece based on its volatility you know, makes a big difference in terms of they understand the change, they know when to roll it out and so forth. It just seems like containers let us support that methodology even more. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, it takes it away from a kind of, a kind of, uh, process where you're relying on people to do the things to, to, to codifying it all in, in a bunch of scripts and a bunch of automation pipelines. Right. You remove a lot of the human element from that. It also feels like you're getting rid of a whole lot of integration challenges. You know, that, that highly volatile piece of code that every time had to be, you know, checked back into the trunk and you had all these integration problems and so forth. Like that, this containing process with microservices is about creating levels of abstraction so that we don't have integration anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you'll end up with a you'll end up with a, a whole set of different discrete services that can be worked on by different teams with right. different release cadences, all that stuff. And and the integration uh, the integration comment is is interesting when you're actually releasing this stuff in mm-hmm. terms of how the pieces integrate together. Because because in the Docker world, when you're running your containers together, they can run inside a, a kind of virtual network that Docker looks after for you. So you don't have to worry about uh, where is my you know where's my SQL Server going to be. I need right. to have a different SQL server address in config for each environment because what you'll do is you'll say i've got a i've got a docker network for my test environment and in there there's a container called sql express or or whatever and then the 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 docker framework when you say where's where's the where's the machine called sql express there's a dns server inside docker which will say is this container here and then in production, you've got a different network on a different set of machines with a different container, but it's got the same name. You don't need to change your config from one environment to the next because within within the, the within the system itself, it always looks the same. Now, um, just to pull in a little more Windows on this side of things, there's the Windows containers and there's the Hyper-V containers. Should we drill into this? Because I think it might be relevant to this audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that, so that's how, that's one way Windows is different from Linux. So mm-hmm. in the Linux world, there's only one way to run containers and that's, that's within the a, a user namespace, a seat group, a little, a little isolated sandbox. In the Windows world, we've got that too. So you can run, that's what they call a Windows container. So it just runs on, on the host. So if you're inside a container and you run, um, and you run Kestrel, say, if you look at the, the task manager on the host, you'll see that process running. You'll see the container process running inside the host because actually they're all sharing the same operating system kernel. Mm-hmm. So if, if I've got 10 
uh, 10 apps that are all running uh, a .NET Core process, then on the host in Task Manager, I'll see 10 instances of, of the .NET executable. Hyper-V containers are a very thin virtual machine. So the container actually runs inside a virtual machine, which is running on your host. So yeah. in that instance, if you had 10 Hyper-V containers all running some sort of .NET Core app on the host, you wouldn't see any of those processes because they are running inside separate VMs. So it's kind of the, the best of both worlds because that, that Hyper-V VM is, is tiny. It's not, it's not a proper fully fledged VM. You won't see it in the Hyper-V manager and, and be able to change it and, you know, do different things to it. It's, it's a, it's a wrapper around the, the, the container process. Um, and the really interesting thing about that is potentially that's going to give you a way to run a Linux container on Windows because hmm. if Microsoft decide that actually our Hyper-V container could be running a really thin Linux VM, then you can run your Linux container that way too. Cool. Wow. So why are, where would you choose the Windows container over the Hyper-V container and vice versa? I think that's down to, to isolation So right. so and, and density. So if you're running a Windows container that isn't uh, a Hyper-V container, you'll be able to run more of them on a given host because right. they have fewer resources each. They, you know, they, they run, they're more lean. But the Hyper-V container gives you a little bit more isolation between your containers and potentially a bit more security. The right. security thing is really interesting. And we started the program talking about security right. um, from your, from the comment from, from the previous show. Um, and what's happened in the, in the Linux world, I think we'll, we'll probably see that repeated in the Windows world is that, uh, people start using Docker. And they say, yeah, it's fantastic. And some people say, well, there's some big security concerns here because if someone gets into your container, they could potentially break out and get onto all the other containers on your host. And over the years, the, the security in Docker has been increased to the level that actually security is a big feature of Docker now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, you can, you get a more secure solution if you're using Docker and not, not least because your image that contains all your software, um, Docker can scan that image and tell you if there's a vulnerability. So going back to that, that original question, um, what happens if there's a problem with the operating system? Well, if you're using one of the, one of the Docker registries for your image, it will tell you, it will say, you know, there's X number of vulnerabilities abilities and you can drill down and decide if you need to fix those with a with a new release interesting yeah microsoft's decision to make these two different containers a lot of people have thought is very odd because you know the linux folks haven't like why are you doing this and the only real strong argument i've seen is you know if it's your code you run it as a windows container in windows containers right because you trust your code when it's somebody else's code and you're not as certain about it, you run it in a Hyper-V container because that level of isolation is substantially stronger. Yeah, that's, that is a really good point. So, so that concern about someone getting into your container and being able to break out and get to your host or your other containers, that, it, that is taken care of with a Hyper-V container because right. they are, they are much more strongly, mm. um, strongly secured, much more strongly isolated. Uh, and it, it is a genuine concern. So up on the Docker Hub, uh, there are a whole bunch of, of images. You can you can run them on your Linux machine, and you don't know what's in them. So some of them are automated builds. So what that means is you you set it up with with Docker Hub. You connect it to a to a GitHub repository. When you check some code into GitHub, Docker Hub pulls it, builds an image for you, and publishes it on the hub. So that is you can trust that because you can go back to GitHub and see exactly what went into that image. But some of them aren't automated you can just build an image with whatever you want on it and push it up to the hub and so there's, a, there's an element of trust in there to say i i do actually trust these people to have to have a reasonable image that isn't going to do something that they're not telling me about um and that that is the sort of case where you've got something that maybe you want to try it out and a hyper-v container will, will give you a, an extra degree of security around it 
is there anything that we should know about running Docker containers in Azure or Azure uh, versus on-premises? Yeah, really good question. So that, that, that's a timing issue. So right now we've got the Azure Container Service and we've got Docker for Azure. And both of those are, are managed platforms that let you go and spin up a Docker Swarm, which is a, a cluster of Docker machines up on Azure. But right mm. now they're all Linux. So when 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 you run Docker for Azure or you run a Azure Container Service, you can get a bunch of Linux machines. So those will evolve, okay. and the next stage will obviously be Windows Server 2016-based. But right now, uh, your your Docker on Azure is going to be different from from what you've got on Windows. But when when the new versions come out, and we've got Windows 2016 clusters up in Azure, that's one of the big benefits of Docker. I've got my application running on my laptop uh, in a in a Docker image. I push that out to my test environment, which is in my data center, and the testers get to it and they're happy with it. It's the exact same application stack because it's bundled in the image. And when I'm ready and they, when they sign it off, we push it up to Azure and run it on a dozen, dozen machines clustered together in Azure. It's the exact same stack. So yes. we know it's going to work. Right. I mean, this is the Docker claim to fame, right? The same container you're running your dev machine is the same container that's running on in QA, is the same one running in on-premises infrastructure, is the same one running in the cloud. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and every, every image has a, a tag, which is like its name, but the tag can include a version number. So you can have, you know, my app version one, version two, you can use your Git commit as, as part of the tag, whatever you want. And because of the way that Docker images are layered, you can have as many versions of your image as you like. So because mm-hmm. they, they don't take up very much room in between the two. So every single version of your app that you've ever built, you can keep on your registry somewhere. And if someone's got a bug in an old version somewhere for a, a, a client who hasn't upgraded, then you can just pull their version, run it locally, reproduce the bug and get a fix out. Yeah. I wonder how long it's going to be before Amazon's container service runs Windows containers. Good question. Uh, I don't think it will be very long because, you know, they're not daft. <laughs> it's just money. It's right? a market. Yeah. It's a, yeah, absolutely. It's a market there. Yeah. That's where they market themselves. AWS. We're not daft. that's why they make the big bucks yeah (laughs) yeah but once again you get into this idea of i want to build an application running in the cloud that's not cloud dependent that it could run on that guy's cloud or that guy's cloud or my own you know i really like that that i I have this immunity to any given platform except for docker of course (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah that's that's a really big sell for me actually because i've been involved with Azure for, for, for many years now, and I've seen that the platform evolve from, you know, a basic IaaS right up to there's some really, really excellent PaaS um, options out there now. Mm-hmm. But when you're with a client and you're, you're looking at a project and you're saying, we're going to put this in Azure, you have to make that choice. Do we go for the, the full PaaS route, which is going to give us um, a really quick deployment and some really excellent feature set, uh, but it's going to tie us into Azure? Do we go down to IaaS, which means we, you know, we've got to manage a whole bunch of machines? I actually think Docker gives you the best of both worlds. Sure. You're building a platform which runs on any cloud or on your own data center or on your laptop. So it's, you know, I think it's a really, it's a, it's a good bet to choose an open platform platform that runs on on any cloud well elton this has uh, been fascinating for me i always learn so much uh when i talk to you guys about docker and containers it's just fascinating stuff thank you oh you're welcome is thank you for having me guys really enjoy the show absolutely and we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the MCC. Yes, I'm a, a